Um, we are kicking off a, a series in Romans. Uh, as I mentioned, I've mentioned this in weeks past, it's gonna be two, two years uh, going through this book. Uh, it's 16 chapters, but we're gonna take a break uh, for summer, nine to 11 weeks off in the summer, and then a couple weeks off at the end of the year for, for Christmas, unless Romans kind of fits with that. We'll figure that out as we go. Um, but we're gonna be spending uh, 20 weeks uh, in chapters one through three. And uh, my wife asked a good question the other night. She was like, what, who, how do you decide what verses you're gonna do? And you know, because today we're only gonna be looking at verse one and next week we're gonna be looking at verses one and two. And how, uh, what is that? And usually what that comes down to is just usually thought by thought. Um, in, in the text, uh, whether that was Paul's or whether it was a, a commentary, whatever it may be, that kind of breaks it up. Um, and so that's, that's why. That's why we've got 20 weeks here. We're not just like randomly pick it. Usually it's, it's a thought by thought or a paragraph by paragraph. Um, and so that, that, that's why. Um, there are, I think, three more copies of the, the just it's the book of Romans and then on one side and then, and then a whole page of notes. There's three more of these in the back. If you are interested in grab one of those, because we're going to be here for a while. And so if you are a note taker, uh, I used to be, I used to have this wide margin uh, Bible and I had these really nice pens um, that I would just, you know, just really take notes like crazy. Um, and then I started preaching every week and I stopped taking notes, I guess. I don't know what happened, but uh, anyways, so if you're a note taker, those are available for you in the back. Uh, and, and these are in the ESV. We typically will preach and teach the NIV, uh, but the NIV makes a, a couple um, uh, linguistic translation um, liberties <laughs> that, that are good, but that's, that's what happens when you translate. When you translate from, from, from Greek uh, into English, um, you, you can't necessarily do it literally, meaning word for word. It wouldn't make any sense. Uh, you can get a Bible like that. It's uh, called a lexograph. In, into, what is it? Interlinear, thank you. <laughs> I was like, I know it's not right. Interlinear Bible, and it's pretty cool. It has the Greek on one side and it's got the English translation on the other side, but it doesn't read well at all, but you can do that. Um, and then you've got uh, NASB, uh, the New American Standard Bible is gonna be the m most literal uh, next to the interlinear Bible. Um, and, and so we normally preach from the NIV, which is kind of right in the middle uh, be, before you get to like just thought and a lot of interpretive uh, things. And, uh, but then we're gonna be reading from the ESV, which I think is a good balance and a good mix. But even today, there's gonna be a word that I think is translated not uh, helpful. Um, not that it's bad or wrong, or you can trust your English translations 100%. Um, uh, what we have today, but anyways, that is that. So this week's sermon is simply Paul the Apostle. We're going to be looking at Romans 1, 1, and we are going to be uh, here for the remainder of the day looking at Romans 1, 1. We'll look at a couple other um, passages to supplement. Uh, that's what we will be doing. So what's the big deal, right? Why, why the walk-up music? Why, why, are in the, why is it such a big deal to get into Romans? As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, um, so, so Steve, if you're not familiar, we have three locations of churches. We have one downtown Minneapolis here, and then there's a, a one in Columbia Heights. And, um, and Steve, who has always wanted to preach the book of Romans. 
And not, not always, but he's like, I wanted to wait till I turned 50 to preach the book of Romans. I'm now 50. I really want to do it now. You know, people that we might uh, read or quote, you know, Tim Keller and John Piper, these guys waited till they were 50. I'm now 50. I want to do it. I'm ready to, to preach the Romans. And I'm like, I, but I'm, I'm not 50. So I don't know. But, but I've kind of been amping up and prepping for this for a couple of years. And I, and I really am excited, uh, excited about it. Um, and so, and, and again, another thing, why it's going to take so long, why it's going to take two years to preach this is because we, we do something typically is when we go through a book and we preach expository, we're going to look at the words and the mean, words have meanings. Uh, and the apostle, when he wrote this, wrote specific words for a reason. And there's meaning behind those words. And, then, and what do those words mean and connotate to us? And how can we interpret that? And then another note, uh, why we do that is because there are topics that are going to come up in the book of Romans that as a pastor, it kind of makes me uncomfortable to preach about. Uh, and I can't ignore it. I can't just skip over seven verses in Romans because you'd all hopefully with your note Bible be like, mm, you, know, you missed the spot, right? I can't do that. Um, and there are gonna be topics that are gonna be addressed uh, that it kind of forces me to address. And that's a good thing. And so that is why we are gonna be, uh, be doing that. Uh, another thing too, that makes this a little difficult. I meant to attach this picture in my weekly email and I forgot. Um, these are just some of the commentaries I have on Romans. And so there's a lot of pre-work and background work uh, that when it, when it goes into this book, uh, I don't have any other book in the Bible that is even remotely close to the amount of volumes of books that I have on the, God, or the, the book of Romans, excuse me, <clears throat> written by the Apostle Paul. So, um, why is this a big deal? When you get to uh, St. Augustine, if you read about his conversion story, uh, when he came to faith in Christ, it was because of the book of Romans that he was actually uh, living a very licentious lifestyle. His mother was praying for him regularly and he had wanted nothing to do with God. And one day he was walking through a garden or a playground or whatever it was, would have been in Africa in 300 AD. And he was walking around and he sees um, in this playground, there's children around and it, and it said, pick up and read in Latin three times, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. And as he was walking, the first book that he saw was a copy of the New Testament and he opened it. And sure enough, he starts reading from Romans and is convicted over his lifestyle and comes to faith in Christ and becomes one of the greatest theologians to ever walk the face of the earth. Um, my, my boy, Martin Luther uh, said this, this letter uh, to the Romans is truly the most important piece of the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And Luther is gonna highlight something I'm gonna talk about today, that this book is for us. This book is for the church. This book was written to the Romans, the Gentile church in Rome, All right? And, and yeah, we'll, I'll come back to that. Let me just narrow down a couple commentaries that I really uh, enjoy, that I like. One is by a professor, he's in Chicago, Douglas Moo, um, and at Ted's Theological Seminary. He um, wrote this book, Encountering the Book of Romans, phenomenal book. We call that one that I have a picture up there, of, we call it Mini Moo, uh, because he had, we have a Maximus Moo that we call it. It's, we, got a, we got a big, big fat guy uh, of Romans. 
uh, that's a little bit a little bit deeper, a little bit harder to understand. He gets really deep, um, but I've got a couple copies of that uh, mini move if anybody would in, be interested in borrowing that. And then our RC Sproul, uh, my other guy. I was at yesterday. I was at doing this lecture on predestination in, in Wisconsin, and, and I was wearing my RC Sproul shirt, and uh, and so my, and someone was like, "Oh, what, what, who's on your shirt?" I was like, "Oh, it's RC Sproul, which is a weird shirt to have. I get that. I, I understand that, but it's my my one of my favorite shirts ever." And and I was wearing the shirt, and and Nolan was there, um, uh, Lower Towner, and he was like, "I thought I thought uh, Martin Luther was your guy," and I was like, "Yeah, but then RC died, and now he can be my guy too." Um, and he was like, what does that mean? And I was like, I only, I only trust people, I only trust men after they die. Uh, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a, like a thing, I guess. Um, we're all sinners and RC is not anymore. So if you wouldn't mind, stand with me and we're going to read this out loud together. Romans chapter one, verse one, we'll probably be able to do this more often in this series because we have a smaller chunk of scripture that we'll be able to read And so this is it. This is our text for this morning. Romans chapter one, verse one, read with me out loud. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Thank you. You may be seated. You might be thinking, how in the world are you gonna spend all day in this text? Well, it's pretty easy, actually. Um, There's a lot of big words here. And I don't mean big as in, uh, syllables and all that, but but a lot of weighty words in this verse. Before I get into that, I want to put an image up here that if you've been coming to Lower Town for a while, you are quite familiar with. This is from Scott Duvall's book called Grasping God's Word. This is uh, simply an image of an old-time city, old-time town, whatever. You've got a river going through the middle. You've got a bridge crossing that river. You've got a kind of a billboard or a map um, and then, then you've got our city, our town. And so the way Scott walks through this and just the way that we interpret the Bible, how we grasp God's word, is you cannot start in our town. And a lot of times we wanna, we wanna do that. We wanna open a text and we wanna ask the question, so what does that mean to me? How, what, what can I do with this, right? And, and, and that's application, that's a good thing, but we gotta do our homework first. We can't just simply jump into our town. We have to, point one there, grasp the text in their town. We have to grasp the text in their town. And so this week, we're not only just gonna grasp the text in their town, because we're not even gonna get to their town yet. We're not even gonna get to Rome. Today, we're looking at Paul. Today, we're gonna focus in on the author of the book that will help us understand the rest of the book. Where is Paul coming from? And then next week, we're gonna look at Rome and who were the Romans and what was the church in Rome. And then, and only then after that, when we put on their shoes, when we put on their togas, can we actually then start to begin to process what does this mean for me? But before we do that, then we have to cross this, this, um, this river and it's called, you, you gauge the width of the river. And so there's gonna be a different culture. It's gonna be a different language. There's gonna be different gods. There's gonna be a different emperor. I'll fill in the blank. There's just different cultural things that are happening. And only then after that, can you cross what's called the principalizing bridge. That there are principles, there are truths that the apostle Paul is teaching the Romans, right? This book, I'm gonna say this in a minute, is not written to you. It's not written to me. It's written to the Romans. And so we have to put ourselves in the Romans' shoes and cross the principalizing bridge. And then you get to point four, which is consult the biblical roadmap. What are other texts, other passages that will lead to us and to help us understand this text, especially now in light of the Christ and the cross? 
that now I know the rest of the story. I know how this ends. I know Jesus died for my sins. So now that I know that, how does it help me interpret everything else? And then and only then can we apply and grasp the text in our town. And so again, like I just mentioned, this book is not written to you, but this book is written for you. We are all the beneficiaries of God's grace when it comes to this book, that Paul wrote this as Augustine and as Luther, and there could have been a million quotes from theologians of saying how important this book is. Um, Luther is gonna boil it down to Romans chapter three. That is his favorite chapter and even just a couple verses within Romans, some of the greatest verses in the Bible. So let's then look at this. Starting in Romans 1, 1, looking at the first word, Paul. Who is this guy? Well, we now know uh, that Paul wrote about at least 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He was born between 5 BC to 5 AD. So he would have been around the same age as Christ, maybe a little bit older uh, than Jesus was uh, before Jesus died, obviously. And then, and then Peter, or excuse me, Paul uh, and Peter, they both die at the same time. But Paul is gonna die under the hand of, of Nero uh, after the fire, and we can kind of piece together what's going on in the book of Acts and just timelines and extra biblical writings from Josephus. And we can figure out that the timeline of when uh, Paul would have died would have been about 64 AD after the great fire in Rome. That's who he was. That was Paul, maybe some of his accolades, what he's, you know, that's on his tombstone, if you will. But Paul is gonna tell us a little bit about who he is, who he was at the time. And so I'm gonna look at Galatians chapter one, 13 through 17. And he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, right? He, he is locked in to what his parents, and, and for thousands of years, his people were teaching him about Judaism. And he, he, as a, he was a, he calls himself a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That there, he, he knew it better than everybody else. And he saw this, this church of Jesus Christ rising up. And he's like, no, we just killed their Messiah. We just killed this blasphemer, Jesus. This isn't him. And he was passionate about the law and about keeping true to what, uh, was taught in the Old Testament and preserving the law that the Messiah was gonna come and he was gonna kick out the Romans. He was gonna reestablish Israel. That's who he is. He most likely has the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Student of the word. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. I'm not gonna necessarily get into that last portion there of what he's talking about, but Paul is called to preach the word and the gospel to the Gentiles. Again, you have ethnic Israel, Jews, and then you have all other ethnic, all other ethnicities. That's what Gentiles means. It means all the people of the world, except those of Jewish heritage. And he says, God called me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, which is completely contrary to what the Israelites believed 
the truth of the word was, that it wasn't for the Gentiles, that they had to convert and become like us rather than we become like Christ. So that's who he was. But before we can, again, get to know who Paul was, we need to know who Saul was. Paul, uh, God is gonna change his name, that he's gonna have this incredible conversion and God's gonna, his, whose name was Saul, He's gonna say, you're gonna change your name. You're gonna have a new name in me now and it's gonna be Paul. We see this in Acts chapter seven. It says this in verse 54. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Who's him? This is um, uh, Stephen. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the good news of who Jesus is. And he's saying, you just murdered our Messiah. You just killed the son of God. And he gets done preaching to a bunch of Jewish zealots. Saul is among them. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God but they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out in the city and stoned him. And the witnesses were laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's the author of the book that we're going to spend two years. He hated the church. He hated people who looked at Jesus as the true Messiah. He wanted nothing to do with them other than to punish them, to put them in prison and to kill them and execute them. That's all he cared about. And he thought he was doing the will of God. But then we see the conversion of Saul, question mark. Yeah, Saul? That guy gets saved because a follower of Jesus, not just a follower, but an apostle. How's this happen? Acts chapter nine, moving forward just a little bit further in the story, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The NIV says murderous threats. I don't know, breathing murder. How do you still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, okay? So the high priest, the, the, the big, the, if you think, think like the Pope of Judaism, he's the high priest. There's only one of them. He's in Jerusalem. He's the big dog. Saul goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is followers of Jesus, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He hates Christians. He's ridding the world of them. 
And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, master? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Well, you're not persecuting my people, Jesus says. You're persecuting me by killing my followers. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and they brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here you have Saul in darkness, he's blind. And he's thinking, he's re-reading the storyline of the Bible in his mind. He's quoting it to himself and he's going, wait a second, wait a second. Jesus just revealed himself to me. I saw the risen Lord and he told me to follow him and to do this. So that means Jesus is the Messiah. So then how I've been reading the Old Testament, I've got it wrong. I've been reading this wrong. And I think we don't necessarily have this, but I think that for three days in darkness that Paul is re-examining the storyline and scene and it's coming to fruition and coming to light how everything from Moses and the prophets, everything is pointing to Jesus. And it starts to click. And immediately he starts to preach. Immediately starts to preach in the synagogues crucified Jesus. I love, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but I love the, the remainder of that text. God um, speaks to a, a guy named Ananias. And he's like, hey, I want you to go and meet, meet Saul. He's, he's going to suffer for my name. He's going to be a follower of me. He's going to do great things for me. And Ananias is like, uh, I think you misspoke, God. I don't, <laughs> I don't think you really know who Saul is. God's like, no, no, no. No, no. I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's, my name's sake. And I think what's a good reminder looking at the life of Saul and the conversion of Saul is simply this truth, that no one anywhere at any time is beyond the reach of the gospel. Nobody, nobody is. And if at any time you think, yeah, but not this person that I know, not this person that I've heard of, not this person that I've read about, nobody anywhere at any time is beyond the reach of the gospel. And the apostle Paul is proof of that. But I think again, as I've mentioned before, as Luther said, this is about Christians, that you are not beyond the reach of the gospel, right? We talk about this idea of going through the, the door of the gospel, right? That I, I'm gonna share the good news of Jesus. He died for your sins. And, and I believe that I put my faith in Jesus and, I, and it's like, I go through the door of the gospel, I shut it, but then I just take the gospel and I hand it out to people who don't know the gospel and don't believe the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is for you. It's for me. It's for everybody and everybody who's put their faith in Christ. And if you look at this, this book of Romans, if you were to share the good news, the gospel, you probably were taught something called the Romans road. You probably, let's walk through the book of Romans and show people you need Jesus. And yet Paul is saying, you need Jesus. He's writing to the church. We all need Jesus. Because it's not just a door that we walk through. It's a path that we walk on every single day, moment by moment. 
I need the gospel. And when I think about my, my kids, I need to apply the gospel to my life. That when I snap at my kids, I raise my voice at my kids in that moment, in that instant, I need to be reminded of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that I don't have a father who's screaming at me, do better, fix it. He says, no, I love you. And I need to respond that way. I think the gospel applies to everything. We need this. We need this book. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, just briefly looking at Christ, and maybe this is obvious, maybe not, but it's not Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. It's not a, it's not a name, it's a title. Christ is simply uh, the Messiah, the anointed one. Um, and, then, and then Jesus is, the, is kind of the Greek English translation of, of Yeshua, uh, Joshua, would be our English word for it. Um, I recently saw a meme that it was like, you, you could actually translate this to um, um, uh, Oily Josh. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know if I like that, that rendition, um, <laughs> right? The anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, the son of God, the son of man. Paul, but he says here, the servant of Christ Jesus. Quoting here, R.C. Sproul, he says in the Greek text, and this is where I said there's a little bit of a translation thing going on. In the Greek text, the word that the apostle uses is doulos, which is not properly translated servant. A servant in the ancient world was a hired employee, a person who could come and go at will, who could uh, resign from one job and seek employment elsewhere if so inclined. But a doulos was a slave owned by a curios, by a lord, by a master or a lord. Frequently in the New Testament, this type of imagery is used to portray the relationship between Christ and his people. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Christians are those who belong to Christ. He is our Lord. He is our curios. He is our master. And, and it's interesting. And I don't know why the, and I, or the, the ESV does it. The NIV does it as well. Um, because there are other times where Paul is going to use the word doulos in Romans, and it's going to be translated and interpreted as slave. But for some reason, it's, it's servant here. And I don't, I don't know why that is because there's some major implications with this idea of being a slave to Christ. Because when I put off myself, when I'm a slave to Christ, I put off my flesh. I have a new master. The problem is within society, usually when someone thinks, oh, I'm gonna follower of Jesus, now I gotta give up all the fun things I get to do. Right? I think of like a, like a horse being broken in. Right? I, when I was a kid, I used to take um, horseback riding lessons from Mrs. Broadfield. Uh, she was a member of our church in Illinois. And I used to take horseback riding lessons and I loved it. Now, she didn't like get wild Mustangs and break them in. I didn't do any of that stuff, right? This never happened. Um, I never saw anything crazy like this, right? But, but, but you can imagine if you're a horse, right? We can all do this. Imagine if, if you, you think you're, you're a Mustang, you're roaming the wild, you know, wild west and you're, you're roaming around in Utah and then someone re- puts a rope around your neck and puts you in a pen, straps something on your back and tries to ride you. All you can think is my freedom has been taken. Is that the case though? Because what Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter three, verse 17, it says that where the spirit of the master is, there is freedom, right? 
that where the spirit of the Lord dwells in me, there's freedom, there's liberty. I say this every single week and I've been saying it for years. Quoting Galatians at the end of the sermon that you have been set free to be free. So don't submit again under the yoke of slavery. You've been set free to be free. True liberty and freedom under the master. And we're gonna look a lot at this idea in the book of Romans that we have a new master, but this is real freedom because I'm no longer controlled by my impulses and by sin. I can now look my temptations and look my sin in the face and say, no. Whereas before when I thought I was free, I could do nothing but obey my old master. Paul right here off the bat learns that humanity is only free when they become a slave to Christ and not a slave to sin. I love that Paul highlights this first. Paul's credentials, his highest credentials are that he is a slave to Christ. Paul, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, this next phrase. So I wanna look at these kind of phrase, I'm kind of taking them um, together and uh, separately at the same time, called and set apart and looking at apostle and gospel. So let's look at apostle and gospel. Apostle just means someone who's sent out. That's the literal uh, meaning of it. Someone who's sent out. But when we look at who were the apostles, who were the 12 apostles? Yes, they were sent out by Christ, but they had seen the resurrected Jesus. That's only a few handful of people who saw the resurrected Jesus and Jesus commissioned them, sent them out. They were able to perform signs and wonders. And these signs and wonders are always self-effacing. They never say, look at what I can do. I am a healer. I am a prophet. I am a visionary. It's all every single time pointing people to Jesus. That people see a miracle and they don't go, wow, look how amazing this guy is. It's always Holy cow, Jesus is the Messiah. Every time. That's who an apostle is. And so you, you maybe, this isn't necessarily a term. There are some denominations that will uh, call a pastor, a leader, an apostle. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But some, some cults, they like to call themselves apostles in this sense. But they like to say, oh no, I'm actually commissioned by Jesus. I can perform signs and wonders. And, and that is not about Jesus. That's about them. <laughs> that's, that's bad. But for the advancement of the gospel. And again, what is the gospel? We, we talk about this and we kind of boil it down into four words here that you have God, there's a creator God and he created the world good and clean without pain and suffering and death. But then he created man and mankind spits in the face of their creator, rebels against God and sin and disharmony enter into the world. But then Jesus shows up and he writes himself into the story and he says, I love you. I love those people who have rejected me and rejected my father. I'm gonna save them. I'm gonna take on flesh, speaking of Christmas and the advent. And I'm gonna take on flesh. I'm gonna live a life that they couldn't live. And I'm gonna die for them. I'm gonna shed my blood for them so that their sins, that they won't be held accountable for their sins. I will pay for their sins. And all you have to do is have faith. It's just faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And again, that isn't just a door we walk through. I need that every day and every hour. Then he says this, called is this command, called and set apart. So I'm gonna look at this first word called. 
Again, quoting here, R.C. Sproul, he says, first, there's God's call to sinners to repent, that gospel door. There is a sense in which this call of God is contained in the gospel itself. For in the gospel, God calls men to repentance. This understanding of call suggests a divine command for the response to which men will be held accountable by God. When the gospel is proclaimed, a call goes out that all men everywhere should repent and come to Christ. This is very different from an invitation. Uh, growing up, and again, I know I, I talk about my, my upbringing a lot. I love the way I was raised. I, I love that they love Jesus, um, but, but it, I have fun with it. I hope you know that. Uh, I, I met Jesus when I was very young during an invitational call, okay? So, so I'm not making fun here, but this is just, right? So what would happen at the end of a sermon uh, that usually the pastor, my dad, uh, would say, right? Every head, eye, every head bowed, every eye closed, right? This between you and God uh, and me, because I'm watching. Um, and, and, and I want you to, to raise your hand if this thing happened or whatever. And it's, there's, this, there's this invitation to meet Jesus as if I have the right to accept the invitation or to reject the invitation. I was joking about the hymn softly and tenderly because I just, I just picture it was right in 266. That was the way I literally opened it. I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about that. This, this idea of Jesus softly, uh, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling and he's, he's, he's pleading, please come home, please come home versus Jesus showing up and saying, you follow me. That's a command. It's very different than an invitation. If someone invites me over to their house today after church, it's very different than being commanded to come over to their house after church today. I can resist an invitation without consequence. And as Sproul is saying here, but there's consequences for not listening to this command. I often think back uh, to this, uh, back, this is over, you know, a decade ago, I was working for my father-in-law as youth pastor up in, in Shoreview. And um, uh, we are very different people. Love, love the guy, love the man, taught me a lot. Um, he had been in ministry for a long time. I was new and I knew everything. <laughs> and I was a jerk, right? But I remember the way that I functioned, I was more of the command type. If you don't tell me what to do, then I don't need to do it, right? And I remember one day I was supposed to be preaching. This was like a month in advance. And he said, hey, Brian, if you want, you should send your outline to Sarah, the, the secretary, so she can print it so we can have it in church. And I was like, okay, sounds good. Next week at the meeting, hey, did you get your outline to Sarah? No, I didn't. Okay, well, if you want, maybe you should get that to her. Okay, sure. Next week. Hey, did you get your outline to Sarah? No, I didn't, right? You give this going. He goes, okay, the third week in a row now I've asked you to do that. And I was like, no, you didn't. You said, if I want, and I don't want. <laughs> and, and he's like, okay, I'm telling you, you need to get your outline to Sarah. I was like, okay, no problem, right? There's a, there's a difference there between an invitation and being called. We got along great. No, I was, <laughs> I'm sure I was very difficult to work with. And yet there's a difference here between set apart, okay? This is, this is more on the, the, the lines of vocation. That the apostle Paul was, was called, commanded to follow Jesus, but then set apart. Because a lot of times I think there's this, um, I don't know, confusion, and I'll, and I'll share a little bit about that, of like, am I, am I called to ministry? Like, has, did Jesus call me to be a pastor? Did Jesus call you to do what you're doing? Or are you set apart 
regardless of your vocation to bring glory to Jesus. And I think that's what the apostle Paul is getting at here. One last quote here from Sproul says this, there is yet another way in which the Bible speaks of the call of God. A call illustrated by the next phrase set apart for the gospel of God. That is what we call vocation. A concept which was popular when the Christian faith had more influence in forming the outlook of our culture. It is a realization that every human life is to be lived under the authority of God. This means that the career I pursue, the job I take is to be in conformity with the will of God. In other words, my life is to be dedicated to God, whether I'm a minister, a farmer, a carpenter, a physician. Each one of us has a vocation. We've been set apart, a calling from God that we are to carry out to his glory and the benefit of his kingdom. And I'll take it a step further here. Even though the apostle Paul doesn't use the phrase, but that word set apart is the literal interpretation of the word holy. Peter used that phrase, be holy as our father in heaven is holy. It means set apart, means let's just take, there's a, there's a something, a tool, an instrument, a, a bowl that I've used for collecting oil uh, under my Jeep in the garage. And, and you know, I'm gonna take this thing now and I'm gonna set it apart for a different task. I'm gonna clean it. I'm gonna make it holy. It's gonna be set apart, meaning don't throw it back under the Jeep. And that's what set apart is. And it's not just my vocation. It's everything about who I am. It's all encompassing. It's me. I've now taken off my robe of, of sin and shame and guilt. And I put on the gospel, and the good news and the freedom of Christ. And I dare not look back at that. It's set apart. It's set apart regardless of my vocation. This is something that I, just being honest that I've struggled with for, for quite a while, at least early on in my ministry. This is a picture that was never taken. Uh, I'm Photoshopped in this. My uh, dad died when I was 14. But like I said, my dad was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. And so I had one of our other pastors at, at Hope uh, Columbia Heights. I uh, had him Photoshop me into this image because it just was, I thought it was a cool thing. And I, and I made this image after my grandpa had passed, you know, five or six years ago. And, uh, and I love this photo. But I had often always asked the question, there's always this question in the back of my mind, am I called to be a pastor? And I struggled with it because I was like, is being a pastor hereditary? You know what I mean? Like, I, this doesn't make any sense. Does God just call the silvers, the silver men that someone in the family is gonna be a pastor? Like, what, what does that mean? I really struggle with that. But when I finally understood this idea of set apart a vocation, it changes things regardless of what I choose to do. That God has set me apart to do his work, to proclaim the gospel. We read a, a little book uh, with our, our elders and, and upcoming and training elders uh, from Bob Thune, um, just on eldership. But he kind of gets away from this idea of this word called and uses the word confirmed. Have I been confirmed that this is a good vocation for me? Have I been confirmed as an elder? Have I been confirmed by others that, hey, I think this is a good thing for you to do? Rather than some internal, yeah, I'm being called to this, this ethereal, no, 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 I'm, I'm called and set apart for the glory of God. And so are you. So that's our verse in gospel application. You have been called. Jesus has looked at every single one of you and said, follow me. Not just go through a door, walk with me every day. You've been set apart for the gospel. And again, I don't care what vocation 
you have. I don't care what school you go to. I don't care what stage of life you're in. Our exhaustion from our life circumstances doesn't negate our set apartness to apply the gospel to our lives every day. That is Romans 1. 1. We're going to have communion like we do every single week here at Lower Town. That we have these elements, the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us, the wafer that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. That's the gospel. And that's simply what this is, is a remembrance. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to partake of these elements. You don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be a member of any church. Maybe you've heard the gospel for the first time today and said, yes, I need that. Then I would love to partake of this meal with you. It's a time to remember the finished work of Christ on the cross as we follow him, as we recognize our set-apartness for the glory of Christ and of God and to proclaim the gospel until he comes. That's what we're called to do. So I'm gonna pray and Angela's gonna go back on the piano and she's gonna play a couple songs, a couple hymns and uh, at an appropriate time, I'll come back up and, and dismiss us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for calling us. I thank you for sending your son to this earth, for dying for our sin and ensuring that we would believe that your son wouldn't die in vain, that we would follow after you. And I know that there are those in this room that don't believe this, but there are those in this room that say, ah, I don't know about all that. You've called us. You've called us to a new way of life. You've called us to, to put off the old man and we might look at that and say, yeah, but it's, it's enticing. Look how free that, that horse looks. But knowing that only true freedom comes when we devote our life to you. When we take every little nook and cranny of our lives and expose it to you, then can the sun really start to work and set us free. Because it is for freedom that we've been set free. We love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.